please stand with me and take out your Bibles and open to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 20 will be our reading for this morning as well as the content of our sermon. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon him, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were in all about 12 men. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that the handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. This sends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's pray once again before we hear from God this morning. We pray now, Lord by the presence of your Holy Spirit. Enable me to communicate your truth. Give ears to your people to hear this truth. And open the eyes of the blind this day. A work we're dependent upon each and every week. May you be glorified now as we proclaim your truth. For Christ's sake, amen. you're visiting with us. We're glad to have you this morning. Continue to work our way through the book of Acts. And here in, in Acts chapter 19, we're told of Paul's missionary journey. This is now the third missionary journey of Paul and his time in Ephesus, which includes a variety of events, making it... Um, a great challenge for preachers when we come to texts like this 
um, to try to find in the text um, a lucid theme because there's so many things going on. Um, I, I do believe um, that I see a, a central theme, and I'll get to that in just a bit. But what we're going to see here this morning is the recounting of Paul's in interaction with four groups of people. Twelve ignorant disciples, some stubborn synagogue attendees, seven Jewish pretenders, and some silversmiths. Now we'll look at three of the four this morning, and we'll save the group of silversmiths for next Lord's Day. But here now, I'm in Ephesus, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ continues to spread. Chapter 19 covers a period of three years, three years in the great city of Ephesus. Um, in our last two studies, in chapter 18, our focus was on ordinary people doing ordinary ministry for an extraordinary Savior. Here now in chapter 19, we're shown some extraordinary experiences that are not the norm in the Christian life. Again, that are not the norm in the Christian life. Some people, unfortunately, read the book of Acts expecting and or even demanding such experiences that are recorded here in chapter 19. The sad result is, is that they go through life seeking experience rather than God. They go through life looking for and loving experience rather than loving God. One of the rules of thumb when reading historical narratives of the New Testament church, the early church recorded here in the book of Acts, is to understand that many of the events recorded throughout are descriptive and not prescriptive in nature. They are descriptive not prescriptive in nature. In other words, there are many things described in Acts that are not recorded for us to replicate. That is, you don't read it and say, oh, now let's do this as they did it and we'll experience what they did. Never in Scripture... Never in scripture are we called to create or frame doctrine out of phenomenal events. Are you with me? Some things recorded in the book of Acts will be going on throughout the church age. For instance, chapter 2 and verse 42, look at it. The continuing, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in the preaching and teaching of the word, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Now, those things are, pre, are repeated throughout the church age. We're participating in them this morning because they are the very nature of the church. The preaching, 
the teaching, the fellowshipping, the breaking of bread, prayer, they continue until the end of the age. Many descriptive events in the book of Acts, um, unfortunately, are taken by some as a formula to be followed. That's a big no-no. And it becomes nothing more than an embarrassing sideshow in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ to this very day. People who expect or demand such experiences as recorded here become very unbalanced in their Christian walk. We must not demand nor expect phenomenal events, yet on the other hand, we must not rule them out. Amen? Because those are his works. That's the work of God, not of man. Now, the central theme of this account, quite clearly, is about Jesus. The central theme of this account is about Jesus and how he sends the Spirit. How Jesus sends his Spirit. And how the truths about Jesus, that is doctrine, sound doctrine, truths about Jesus, lead us to Jesus. Not merely to experiences. Doctrine about Jesus leads us to Jesus, and we also see in this account how the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are in Jesus. Amen? Okay, that's the introduction, so let's look at the account. We'll work our way through this multifaceted record, the early church. In verse 1, we read, um, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, we'll stop there, um, last week we were introduced to this very interesting fellow, um, an eloquent man, a Jew from Alexandria, Egypt. He came to Ephesus, we read that he was competent in the scriptures, he was fervent in spirit, nevertheless, since he was acquainted only with the baptism of John, you can see that there in chapter 18 and verse 25, one Aquila and Priscilla, who by the providence of God, who were left there in Ephesus, met this man, they hear him preach, they pull him aside, they fill in the gaps, explaining to him more accurately the way of God, verse 26, and we see the fruit of it, verse 27. Apollos, traveling now to Corinth, greatly helped those who had believed through what? How do you believe? How do you believe? Through grace. They believed through grace. He helped those who had believed through grace. Okay, now that is the overarching theme of the book of Acts. People believing the gospel through grace. It is, of course, always through grace that anyone believes. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. God, who is holy, God, who is just, owes us nothing but wrath. 
He owes us nothing but judgment, but yet in his grace has provided Christ's merit to cover our demerit. Grace. You all know this verse, Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. All who come to saving faith always come according to God's grace. Time and time again. Okay, that is doctrine, my friends. That is soteriology 101. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. Now, reading through the book of Acts, we have called attention to this progression of divine revelation over and over and over again. Back in chapter 2, look at it, verse 39. Peter preached that the gospel promises, notice, is for as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. It is for as many as he will call to himself. 18 years later, that is after chapter 2, verse 39, um, those in Antioch and Pisidia who responded to the gospel, we're told in chapter 13 and verse 48, look at it, as many as were, say it, as many as were, that is ordained, as many as were appointed to eternal life, what? Believed. Appointed. Okay, appointed a, a decree of God. That means an action by God taken in the past. In time, they believed. They were appointed to believe, teaching us this, that believing is the consequence and not the cause of God's decree. Believing is the consequence of God's decreed will. We believe because we're elected. We're not elected because we believe. Do you rejoice in that truth, by the way, believer? I hope you do. Now, if you're, here, if you're an Arminian, look. I want you to read that. As many as were what? Appointed to eternal life believe. Read it again. And then rejoice in the fact that you didn't understand it until you read it again. I'm serious. As many as were appointed believed. When, when Paul was preaching to Lydia... Chapter 16, verse 14, notice. The Lord, what? Opened her heart. Did Lydia open her heart? The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And then five years after that, <laughs> it was Apollos helping them who had believed through grace, that is by way of grace, he helped them. Not, notice, not through man's free will, but through God's free grace, they believed. In grace, my friends, in grace, God has given us the gospel to believe. Once again, in grace, God has given us the gospel to believe, and in grace, he gives us to believe the gospel. It's all grace. Amen. Amen. And it always will be. Amen. Okay. The gospel through grace now comes 
to 12 ignorant disciples 25 years after the death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ here in Ephesus. Verse 1, while Apollos was at Corinth, helping those who believe through grace, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. Okay, time out. This is Paul's third missionary journey. Do you remember back in Paul's first missionary journey? Where did he desire to go that the Holy Spirit hindered him from going? Asia. Ephesus, up in that region. The Holy Spirit hindered him from going there. And then he had that dream, a man in Macedonia crying out, come help us. And then they go to Macedonia and instead of Asia. And here, now in the third missionary journey, he actually enters that area. Briefly in his second missionary journey, and now in the third. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. So here now, he's there in Ephesus, and he found some disciples. Verse 2, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, Paul must have heard something here that revealed gospel ignorance in these men. Something provoked him to ask this question. Now, because regeneration, those who believe... Belief is the product, it's the fruit of regeneration. And all who are regenerated are regenerated by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And they believe. Romans 8, 9, look at it. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. The Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. So, with that in view, verse 2, and they said to him, no, we, we've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Well, now remember, they're disciples of John. Okay, this cannot mean that they had never heard of the Spirit at all, because if they are familiar with the Old Testament, which they certainly would have been, the Holy Spirit is referred to numerous times in the Old Testament. And John the Baptist spoke of the Messiah who will come and baptize with the Holy Spirit. Remember Matthew chapter 3, verse 11? Look. I, said John, baptize you with full water for repentance. But he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worried to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. They heard this. John was a preacher. He preached, and they heard him preach. Verse 3, and he said, well, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Now, John's baptism, remember, was one of repentance. He called the Jews to himself to prepare their way, to prepare the way for this one who's coming. Repent, but belief or baptism in Jesus is baptism in new life, the new life that Christ provides. Always. Remember, John was the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So his baptism, that is John's, anticipated someone greater, Jesus himself, the Messiah. So he prepared the way, and remember that salvation involves both a turning from sin and a turning to Christ. So here... They've been baptized under the baptism 
of John. So Paul said, verse 4, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. That is to say, they'd received only half the message. Now, apparently, okay, th this group of 12 had relocated from the area of Palestine and into Ephesus before Jesus' ministry was completed. Before he sent the Holy Spirit, they hadn't therefore heard of the sending of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which means they certainly hadn't heard of Christ's death and resurrection. So Paul knows just what to do. And that is he would preach Christ crucified and raised again because that's what he always did. Fair enough? Amen. Now, let me pause and say this. At this point in the text, it may be, okay, because they're disciples, we read here, they're disciples, we read that they believe, disciple means learner, disciple means follower, it's possible that they had received the Holy Spirit, they just don't know what they have yet. They're basically Old Testament believers at this point, if you will. So I don't think the question is so much whether they possess the Holy Spirit or not. I think the point is whether or not they're aware of the fact that they possess the Holy Spirit, or I should probably say that the Holy Spirit possesses them. Because possession has to do with ownership. Amen? And that's why a Christian can't be demon-possessed, by the way. Because you're already possessed by the Holy Spirit. By the blood of Christ. There are a lot of things that I received from Christ when I became a believer that I did not know I had received at the time. Can you agree with this? Can you identify with this? See, knowing that I'm a child of God changes how I think and it changes how I live. When I came to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 as a new believer, this is what I read. And my brother Ryan cited this this morning. We have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. When you go on to read in Ephesians, you come to realize that as a believer, you are already a recipient of, and let me go through the list, divine election, adoption, redemption, forgiveness of sins, a recipient of the revelation of God's purposes in history, Ephesians 3, you're sealed by the Holy Spirit and you already have an eternal inheritance already. Did you know that the moment you were born again? No, you did not. Knowing that there's absolutely no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ changes how you think and how you live. Or it ought to. You know, during the Great Reformation, the Great Reformation changed the way Christians think. It changed the way they live. When you come to realize that there's no such place as purgatory, duh, that you don't need to purchase your loved one um, out of some period or place of torment, it changes how you think. 
how you reason, how you live, and most certainly how you spend your money. That was the manipulation of the day to get people's money, to buy your loved ones out of purgatory, a place that doesn't exist. So all that to say, they very well could have possessed or the Holy Spirit could have possessed them at this point. They just don't realize it yet. They're about to realize it. Verse 5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of it all. Through grace, they believed the fuller revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and through grace, they received. Verse 6, and when Paul laid his hands on him, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were in all about 12 men. Okay, we've seen this over and over again in the book of Acts. Remember Peter preaching in Cornelius' house? While Peter was preaching, without any invitation whatsoever, the Holy Spirit fell. The Holy Spirit fell by grace. The Holy Spirit falls on this group, and they begin speaking in tongues. Is it possible for the Holy Spirit to come upon people who already possess the Holy Spirit? Is it possible for the Holy Spirit to come upon people who already possess the Holy Spirit? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. He's not limited to a one-time event. Regeneration is a one-time event. I pray every week that he'll fall upon us fresh. I prayed it this morning. I pray that he'll empower me every time I speak, whether it's on the street or at this pulpit, that he'll empower me that he'll fall upon me freshly. Pray that. Pray it. See, this is Acts 2 happening in Acts 19. This is a mini Pentecost in Ephesus, not Jerusalem, 25 years after the fact. That is 25 years after Pentecost in Ephesus. These are 12 men, 12, 12 a kind of new Israel, if you will, being formed in Ephesus. A group of men baptized into the name of Jesus, who is the Christ, Savior, Messiah. Now, let me say this. The phenomenon of tongues at the point of baptism in the New Testament is the exception not the rule. It's the exception, not the rule. Speaking in tongues in the New Testament was speaking in a known language which one had not studied. That's what biblical tongues is. For example, if I were suddenly to finish this sermon speaking Russian, and there were some folks out there who spoke Russian, who understand Russian. For instance, if my grandkids were here, their mother's from Moscow, she only speaks to my grandchildren in Russian. If they heard me finish the sermon in Russian, they would be amazed. Not quite as amazed as I, but they would be amazed. (laughs) (laughs) I know babushka and diadushka, that's it. Grandma and grandpa, that's all I know. (laughs) 
they would be astonished because I've never studied that. I would be more astonished because I've never studied Russian. And then all of a sudden I would finish the sermon in Russian. That would be biblical tongues, not prattle, not babble, not gibberish nonsense. That's not tongues. And by the way, this account is not when some charismatics teach as the second blessing of God. Know that for a fact. That you can receive the Holy Spirit, um, or no, you can believe but not receive the Holy Spirit until this phenomenon takes event in your life, takes place in your life. This event of speaking babble. So they pull you in a back room and they say, come on, just try, just try. And I'll give you my example of speaking in tongues. Bear with me, those of you who've heard it before. They'll say something like this. Over and over and over again. That's nonsense. It's gibberish. Tongues. Tongues was a sign miracle to the Jews of the coming of Messiah promised 700 years before through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 28, Paul cites that prophecy as being fulfilled in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 when he says this. Look at it. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strange people, strangers, I will speak to this people. Context, which people? This people is what, what people? Jews, Jews, Israel. I will speak to this people, and even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. They won't believe in my Messiah. They will reject my Messiah. So then, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers, specifically unbelieving Jews as a sign judgment of God. Is there any reason for that sign judgment to be in existence today? No. Not in a general sense. And by the way, this is the last time you read about tongues in the New Testament. In the book of Acts. Last time, right here. Well, Paul mentions it in 1 Corinthians 14. You just said it right there. Yeah, but he writes to Corinth from, guess where? Ephesus. Are you with me? Amen. 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 Let's have some soundness to our doctrine. <laughs> All right, so the gospel comes through Paul to 12 ignorant disciples. Now the gospel comes through Paul to, to, to these stubborn synagogue attendees. Jews in Ephesus. Verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. By the way, this is Paul fulfilling his promise that he gave back in chapter 18, verse 21, when he passed through Ephesus. Remember, they were bidding him, please stay with us. We want to hear more. And he says, I got to go. But if the Lord wills, I'll return. And guess what? The Lord willed it. Here he is. Chapter 18, verse 21. So notice here now, um, Luke, our author, notice the, the two verbs he uses, that Paul was there reasoning, 
and persuading. Reasoning has to do with apologetics. Paul understood Jewish thinking, to say the least. Here he is reasoning with these Jews. He he analyzes where they are spiritually. He dismantles any false concepts or ideals or impressions that they have regarding the living scriptures of God, i.e. the Old Testament. He reasons with them. He, He establishes grounds by which he could reason with them with regard to the fulfillment of those scriptures that all the promises of God in the Old Testament find their yes and amen in. In Christ Jesus. So he reasons. And notice he did it boldly. Boldly. Without fear of man. Without any fear of man, he preaches to persuade them about the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And most certainly, right, the king of the kingdom. Jesus himself, who ascended and received all authority from the Father. Daniel 7. Jesus came out preaching in his public ministry. Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is at the threshold. It's at the threshold because I'm here. And I will inaugurate it, fully inaugurate it, when I die and rise again. And indeed he did. Paul will go on preaching the kingdom until his dying day. We read about him in Rome. In the very last verse of the last chapter of Acts, we read this. He, Paul, was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Bold brother. You love bold brothers, man. Preaching Christ. Okay, now there's a reminder here that the gospel also has a hardening effect. The same sun, S-U-N, that melts the wax also hardens the clay. I fear for the souls of people who've grown up in the church. They still sit under the proclamation of the gospel in unbelief, hardened. Verse nine, but when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he, Paul, withdrew from them and took away the disciples from within, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So that is after three months of hearing the gospel truth, of hearing of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, there's a group within who continue in their unbelief. How do they continue in their unbelief? Notice, they spoke evil of the way. They they, they spoke evil of the Christian faith before the congregation. They would have been saying things like, this is crazy, this is silly, this is wrong. We're not going to put our faith in a crucified, in, in what, a risen Messiah? I don't think so. Before the congregation. So Paul, I'm ever persistent, notice, not wishing to cast pearls before swine. He leaves the synagogue. He goes in and rents space in the hall of one Tyrannus, probably a local philosopher. The the name means tyrant. Perhaps, I I, I don't think you'd name your child tyrant, maybe, especially if you wait to name them until they're two. (laughs) Then I can see it. (laughs) 
I have a two-year-old grandson, and he's a tyrant. <laughs> so this Tyrannus, it was either a local philosopher, perhaps his students gave him that nickname, or this Tyrannus owned this hall. Nevertheless, Paul takes the opportunity here to rent it out <clears throat> in the middle of the day. How do we know that? Well, most likely there's some older manuscripts. If you notice um, in your footnotes in your Bible, you'll have a little number there, a number two or a number four, and you look down below and you'll see that he reasoned in this hall from the fifth hour to the 10th hour, which means from 10 a.m., I mean, I'm sorry, from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Guess what time that was in the Mediterranean world? That's siesta time. You go to work at 6, you work till 11, you take off and break for the, the heat of the day, you come back in late afternoon, finish up the day. So during that time, Paul rents out this hall and reasons with people about the kingdom. And notice, there are people who are willing to forego their, their siesta <laughs> to listen to this brother preach for five hours a day, and you figure probably six days a week. And he did this for two years, so we do some math. A daily five-hour lecture will consider six hours a day, knowing that he would take off the, the Lord's day. Five-hour lecture, six days a week for two years, comes to 3,120 hours of gospel declaration. Preacher. Preacher. So notice, two years of preaching was now reaching the ears of the entire region. Not all without exception, but just all in a general sense. It really spread out. Word was out. Excuse me. <clears throat> Here he is. Verse 11. God was performing... <laughs> extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the disease left them and evil spirits went out from them. Okay, notice Luke, the narrator, narrator here, he adds the word extraordinary. These are extraordinary miracles. These are unusual miracles. And by the way, Throughout redemptive history, we see extraordinary miracles recorded at very specific times in history. First, through the ministries of Moses and Joshua, and then through Elijah and Elisha, and finally, Jesus and his apostles, representing the law, the prophets, and Messiah. So here... Under the category of Messiah, his apostles, remember signs of apostles we see throughout the book of Acts, signs of an apostle. These are unusual, extraordinary things that are occurring. It's important we understand this also. In the old covenant, when someone was deemed ceremonially unclean, it made their garments unclean. And those garments deemed defiled and unclean, they were instructed to cleanse, to wash. Leviticus 11, 13, and 15. 
Chapters 11, 13, and 15, it's recorded there. Now, under the new covenant, when the pure one comes, when the holy one comes, that is reversed. In Luke 8, 44, a woman with a 12 years of blood flow would have been de declared as being ceremonially unclean every day. And when the unclean one reached out to touch the hem of the garment of the clean one, guess what happened? He wasn't deemed unclean. He made her clean, purified, healed. So here... As a sign of Christ's ascension and power, Paul's garments now have this extraordinary effect. Extraordinary, unusual. Unusual healings, exorcisms. God was doing this according to his sovereign will. The, the, the spirit blows where he wishes, amen? This is God's work. He's doing unusual things. And he'll do unusual things anytime he wants to do unusual things. He'll do phenomenal things anytime he wants to do phenomenal things. Amen? He still does. Make no mistake about it. He still does. Nevertheless, nevertheless, this is not a formula to start a handkerchief ministry. Paul didn't start one. You got these lunatics on TV who do. You ever seen these guys? You have some charlatan who handles this handkerchief. It's usually green because it's the color of money. So they'll send it to you for a donation of $25. Postage paid. Postage paid. They send it to you and they'll instruct you, lay it over your bills or lay it over some ailing part of your body for, for healing or for financial success. And people buy into it all the time. That's utter nonsense. This is not a formula to start these kinds of ministries. This is an extraordinary sign miracle of God through the apostles and sign miracles always led to an end. The end of the miracle was the proclamation of Jesus Christ crucified, raised again. That was the purpose of sign miracles, to show that the one preaching through whom these signs would come was a legitimate representa representation of our Lord Jesus Christ. A legitimate ambassador of our Lord Jesus Christ in the early church. Not a formula for us to follow on some Sunday morning. Can you imagine me calling Sean up to hand out? Come on. Like, like say, I think I'm special. I touch him, he takes him out and, and anoints you and puts him on you. Would you run for the hills? I hope you would. Call me to repent first, and if I don't, then run. It'll be empty next week, as it ought to be. Okay, now we see the gospel going through 12 ignorant disciples, believers. It comes to, to some um, um, obstinate, um, hardened unbelievers in the synagogue. Uh, the gospel continues to be poured out through the Apostle Paul. Here now to seven Jewish pretenders. Notice, remember this. Wherever God is at work, Satan will always work to produce 
a counterfeit. The English writer Daniel Defoe, you know, Robinson Crusoe, and he wrote numerous things, but he wrote some poetry. And with it comes this little stanza that goes like this, quote, whenever God erects a house of prayer, the devil always builds a chapel there. And twill be found upon examination, the latter has the greater congregation. End quote. Ooh. When you see false teachers on TV, guys who don't preach the gospel, they just have this big smile and, you know, God loves you no matter what and he wants you to have your best life now. <laughs> and you never hear the cross, you never hear the blood, you never hear Christ proclaimed. And you say, why, why, why is there 20,000 people there? That's why. The, all, the devil always builds a chapel there. Verse 13. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus, yeah, Paul preaches, that Jesus, to come out. Look at that. Seven sons of Siva, Jewish chief priests, were doing this. They're trying to cast out demons in the name of this Jesus that Paul preaches. People are taking notice of the power of Jesus' name here. And these Jews wanting in on the power. Notice they employ Jesus' name to cast out demons in this mighty name. But notice it doesn't go, doesn't go quite as well as they had hoped. Verse 15. And the evil spirit answered and said to them. Hey brother, would you turn the air on please? And said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? That's kind of funny, actually. Jesus I know. Okay, Paul I know. Um, Who did you say you were again? (laughs) He bludgeons, now the, 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 the demon within this man bludgeons all seven of them. And this is a serious prolonged beating, by the way. He beats them until they have no clothes and they all run out naked. I know Jesus. I know Paul. Remember once again, the first to recognize Jesus correctly when he commenced his public ministry, it was? Demons. He says, I know Jesus, I know Paul, but you seven, you're not legitimate. You don't know Jesus. You don't know Christ. You aren't believers, therefore, you have no power over me. Okay, lesson, lesson. Christian, don't you dare, Christian, don't you dare ever go to a tarot card reader, play Ouija board nonsense, or or seek wisdom for your future from some unbeliever who, who deals in black magic. Don't ever do that. Demons cannot be manipulated or, or, or mastered by magical incantations or formulas from unbelievers, even if they use the name of Jesus. No way. Right here. Jesus' name can't be used as a magic spell. 
It is only those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit who know this Jesus, who proclaim this Jesus, who preach Jesus Christ crucified and raised again, living in the power of the Holy Spirit. For the glory of Jesus' name, are we able to stand and, and, and resist the devil? And he will flee. We stand, we resist, he will flee. If you ever happen to come in contact with someone demon-possessed, I don't know that I ever have. I don't really know that I want to. I've been in some dark situations, some dark people saying some dark things, and I have said, in the name of Jesus Christ, stop now. And guess what? They stopped. It was really amazing. Whether they were possessed or not, I have no idea. But only you in Christ have the power with the name regarding Jesus Christ not unbelievers. He knocks them down. He knocks them out. He, he bloodies them. Verse 17. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all. Fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. They knew the name of the Lord Jesus was not to be toyed with. Verse 18. Many also of those who had believed, notice, kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. In other words, they brought these things that were hidden away into the dark, under the dark, into the light. They brought it into the light, realizing now we can trust Jesus for everything. He's king. He's Lord. Now, we may not have magic books hidden away, but in a group this size who, who profess Christ, there may be perhaps some secret sins hidden away. Secret sins, hidden away, things that have yet to be brought out into the light. And let me tell you this this morning, beloved, God calls us who are redeemed by the blood of Christ to bring these things out into the light because it will not remain a secret. Just don't waste your time. Don't waste your time. He doesn't want this for you. You don't want this for you. You don't want this for you. You don't want this for your loved ones. Bring it out in the light, confess it, repent of it, get rid of it, Burn it, so to speak. What scripture say? Beloved brothers and sisters, your sin will find you out. You're mine, you're forgiven. You have my spirit. Don't, don't grieve my spirit. Don't quench my spirit. So stop hiding this thing. Bring it out into the light. Repent of it. Let it go. You'll be free. And, verse 19, they counted up the price of them and they found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. This is equivalent to the year's wages of 150 men together. 150 men, their wages for an entire year. You know what this is a sign of? True conversion. True conversion. So rather than selling these books, 
these new believers willingly throw them in the fire because they understand the love of Christ for them, and this is in response to that love. They show their love for him. Amen? Question. Christian, is your heart, no, let me, no, not Christian. Someone who may be counting the cost of following Christ. You're considering these truths of the gospel you've heard for some time, but yet you're clinging to some rival of Christ. And you're afraid to let go of this rival of Christ thinking the cost will be too great for you. Let it go. Come to Christ. Let it go. Come to Christ. You'll be the much better for it. <laughs> let me tell you that. So notice their, their testimony had a great effect. Verse 20. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. That's the account. Now as I said, the central theme of this account is about Jesus. It is about how Jesus brings his Holy Spirit and how the truths about Jesus, doctrine, sound doctrine, lead us to Jesus and how the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. He confirms that and continues to reaffirm that in those that are his by way of ownership, the blood of Christ, who loved us what? First. He loved us first. He sends us the Holy Spirit. He grants us the grace to believe. We believe through grace. This is the love gift of God. And it teaches us this. Doctrine is incredibly important. Doctrine is crucial. Doctrine is essential. It is foundational for what? To love doctrine? No, to love Jesus, to whom the doctrine points, to whom the doctrine teaches us about. We don't love doctrine, merely doctrine that's about Jesus. We love Jesus. Amen. I'm not Pentecostal, but sometimes. Get an amen from you, brothers and sisters. Okay, now, do you love Jesus, Christian? We have an example here. Okay, we have an example here to avoid. Remember, Paul is where? Where? Ephesus, a church that began very well. When he writes them in his epistle, the book of Ephesians, he calls attention to their confident faith and trust in Christ and their love for Christ and one another. He calls attention to that. Forty years later, Jesus says through John, his apostle, he says, right, to the church of Ephesus. Look at it. Ephesians chapter 2, the angel of the church in Ephesus writes these words. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Notice, 
I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they're not. How does the church at Ephesus know they're not apostles? Because they're given to sound doctrine. They know the word. They know what the word means by what it says. And they are not. You found them to be false. Why? Because they know, they know sound doctrine. And you have perseverance. And you have endured for my name's sake. And have not grown weary. But. This I have against you. That you have left. Your first. Love. Those of you who have been faithful. To Pacific Hope Church. The last 13 years, let, re, let me remind you of some who have come and gone without naming names. You know some have come up under church discipline. You know some have gone out from among us who at the time they were with us claimed to love doctrine. They boasted in their doctrinal knowledge. Some of those same men, they now deny the faith. Some of those same men, have apostatized, and they're now under the false gospel of Catholicism. Yeah, false gospel of Catholicism. Some of those men have adopted strange doctrine in order to accommodate their lifestyle. Some of those men have left their families for another woman. So my question is, as I pondered this, praying for y'all as well as myself, where will we be in another 27 years? 27 plus 13 is 40. Jesus addressed the church of Ephesus 40 years later. Question, Christian, have you, have you, in the busyness of your life, left your first love? Have you abandoned, actually, your first love? Have you wandered from him? Does the Lord say to any of us this morning, you've left your first love? Because immediately he says this, come back. Come back. My arms are as wide open today as they were yesteryear. The day I called you, the day I gave you my spirit, the day I provided my grace for you to believe, my arms are wide open and I say, come home. Come home. Amen. Have you left your first love? We love doctrine because it brings us to Christ. That's why we're all about doctrine. Not to be all boastful about it, because it teaches of Jesus, the one who loved us first. Come back. That's to the believer. For any of you who are unbelieving this morning, let me say this. Those who don't love Jesus in this life, you won't have Jesus in the afterlife. Paul, loving Paul, also wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. He who does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Eternally. Eternally. If you're here this morning 
and you have not entrusted yourself to this Lord, this glorious, loving Lord Jesus Christ, we invite you this morning, this day, to rest your eternal destiny upon this name, the name above all names, the Son of God, the only Redeemer, Jesus, who is the Christ, God's Savior. The only way to the Father, who offered atoning sacrifice for sins, making it possible for the sinner to be saved from God's wrath by way of God's grace, for God's glory, and for your own good, ultimately. Not ultimately, but finally. Ultimately, it's for his glory. Finally, it's for your good. Amen? Amen. Forgiven of all sins. Past, present, future. If that's you, come to Christ today. We don't call you to come forward. We demand in the name of Jesus that you repent and believe. And if God, according to his grace, is at work this morning in your lives, you'll leave here a believer, a new creature in Jesus Christ. And then if you have any questions, what is now mine in Jesus Christ, I'll take you this week, or one of the elders, or deacons even, will take you to Ephesians 1.3. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in the heavenly places they're yours now. They're yours now. Come to Christ and believe. And he'll attest to the reality of it by the very presence of his Holy Spirit within you, where you will now begin to love the Lord and the things of the Lord, but without his Holy Spirit, you'll never believe. So may God, by his grace, cause you to believe, and may God, by his grace, sanctify you, believer, in the same grace that saved you to continue on for his glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these examples. We thank you for the warnings. We thank you for the confident trust that your living word provides us by way of the spirit. Again, we ask, take these truths, sanctify your people by way of this truth. Bring those who do not believe this day, this very morning, we pray to faith in Jesus Christ alone for your glory. Amen.